Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Sherba, and today I'm extremely excited to be sitting down with George Saharis, Chief Operating Officer at Alia Care. George, very excited to have you on the podcast today. Been excited about this conversation. I think it's going to be a great one. Why don't we kick it off by just jumping into your career journey leading up until today? Sounds good. Uh, excited to be here too, Peter. And uh, yeah, hopefully walking through the journey a bit is is helpful to someone out there. I know I, I find it interesting, but uh, no guarantees, huh? Definitely. Will be. <laughs> All right. So yeah, uh, like... You mentioned my name's George. I'm currently the Chief Operating Officer at Eliacare, and I've been in this role for uh, just coming up on seven months. But in the last little while, and what I would summarize my career journey uh, formally beginning is as follows. So back in 2007, uh, my first kind of business job out of school was joining a company called Canadian Education Network. And I worked as a manager of student development, basically helping uh, first, individual student placements, and then also uh, public-private partnerships over time between Canadian curriculum and education providers, uh, and also overseas government programs that were looking to place uh, students in higher education, and particularly in the Canadian market. So I did a variety of jobs there and uh, learned, I think, the fundamentals of things like project management, business analysis, and even business development as well, like going and working on these contracts with overseas governments and working with the education sector uh, in higher ed in Canada. Right. Really uh, early formative moments uh, for me in my career. While I was doing this, I had recently completed my undergrad at UBC, originally in political science and history as a double major, uh, and had ambitions of going to law school. And along the way, actually changed my mind. Uh, kind of did a full 180, which I'll, I'll never forget was difficult to explain to my parents at the time. Yeah. They were like, so you're not going to be a lawyer and you're going to do what exactly? And I was like, I don't know yet, but something in business. And they were, <laughs> uh, you know, a little, a little apprehensive, uh, but uh, patient with me as I uh, decided what to do next. And what I ended up doing while working at Canadian Education Network or CEN for short was do my... MBA part-time at UBC Sauter School of Business. So while there, I, I still kind of was a generalist and it hadn't fit into any specific discipline. I guess you could probably argue that I'm still a generalist today anyway. Right. And uh, started to experiment with a few things, right? Like try different disciplines. And I got really, really curious about what at the time and, you know, for those younger folks out there, this is now a while ago, like 2007, 2008 era where... Uh, the internet technology space was still emerging from the dot-com crash and kind of finding its way into the next series of, uh, of apps and, and kind of startups. So uh, I got interested in, at the time, uh, some research that was going on at the business school under a professor named Ron Sanfitelli, who got me really curious about... He ran a course on uh, IT and technology in business as part of the MBA program. Right. And was almost going to do a research project with him, like a joint kind of go in and do a, an actual research master's thesis, potentially do that as a PhD. And while I was looking to do that, uh, an MBA colleague of mine named Ryan Govro started a company called Clio. Uh, and as folks may or may not know, Clio is a, a scale a technology startup uh, based in Vancouver uh, in Canada and is the leading provider of cloud-based legal practice management. So a B2B SaaS platform system of record that really, really zooms in on uh, law firms and in particular, uh, small to mid-sized law firms 
in private practice. And I joined when that company was six people and wow. we decided to do a startup. So everybody took the plunge. Obviously, the two founders, Jack and Ryan first. Uh, I joined as employee number six. Uh, I think I had a job title, but like it's not even worth really describing. Like it was kind of, right. we didn't have any marketing, we didn't have any sales, we didn't have any business development. We had a couple of support folks and we had some devs working on the app and two founders who, of course, did everything also. And so picked it up from there and started what ended up being an 11 year chapter for me at Clio, uh, taking the company from very humble and a scrappy startup beginnings uh, straight through to scale that sees the company soon to come up to a uh, thousand employees. Uh, just announced that it's well past $100 million US in uh, ARR, which I think folks are calling a centaur these days. And along the way, I uh, got to participate in several huge uh, financing rounds as well, including what uh, at the time at least was Canada's largest ever like Series D growth equity round, which was US $250 million in 2019, which uh, of course made the company a, a unicorn, which lots of folks like to, uh, to talk yeah. about as well. Um, and yeah, along the journey, like I... I Started in what I describe as business development strategic partnerships. I ended up becoming a steward of growth bets in that journey. Uh, I eventually launched kind of sales operations, rev ops, and biz ops uh, as functions within an operations portfolio uh, and grew to become the company's uh, chief operating officer, uh, which had an array of responsibilities as well, including things like international expansion, uh, new markets, eventually getting helping us get into payments uh, and online payment, credit card payment processing in the merchant services space. Uh, and uh, as you might imagine, in 11 years in, in startup land, a lot of things in between uh, that, of course, would be happy to uh, you know, dig into in a bit more detail uh, outside of the summary. And, and that brought me to uh, the middle of last year when uh, I kind of decided to make a change. I, I ended up joining an exciting new, also Canadian, but this time Montreal-based company uh, called Liacare, uh, which is also in the what you might call vertical B2B SaaS space. Uh, but focuses on home care and home health providers. And so excited to be diving into and learning all kinds of things about a new space. Uh, certainly excited to be working with an incredible new team. Uh, and frankly, just incredible to see the growth and still early stage of technology evolution in what's happening and what is... I think a space that flies under a lot of folks' radar. Maybe right. practice management might too, uh, to be fair. But... We have a tremendously shifting demographic. Uh, we have changing attitudes in healthcare towards uh, community care and to uh, you know moving away from facility-based care and into a lot of care at the place people call home. Uh, and so it's a dramatically and rapidly transforming space. And uh, I'm excited to get to work on it every day as the company CEO. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm so excited to jump into so many areas of the, of the journey because even in our conversation that we had a couple of weeks ago leading up to this, there's just so much uh, rich conversation to be had here. But I'll maybe start all the way at the back because I think maybe I missed this during our first conversation. But poly science and history, uh, you know, envisioning you're going to be a lawyer, right? That must have been something that you were planning for for some time, right? What drove that change? Because that is quite a bit of a 180 to then just go into a kind of a general business career. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great place to start. Um, I had the opportunity to intern with a family friend who was a practicing lawyer. Ah, okay. And that was kind of the real pivot for me in that maybe I was walking with tremendously naive expectations and this isn't what happens to everybody, but let's just say the day to day requirements and actual functions of private legal practice were very different from the things that I had convinced myself that I was passionate about, right? Right. Like, 
I was passionate about jurisprudence, legal theory, all these, you know, uh, incredibly academic and uh, thought-provoking topics. And in reality, I mean, hey, look, I'm sure there are some lawyers out there that spend all of their days, uh, especially members of the judiciary, perhaps. But overall, the day-to-day of serving clients and being in private legal practice is, is very, very different. And I think I was fortunate to have that experience. I, I think that... I still would have learned a lot going in that career path and yeah. uh, that I didn't emerge thinking maybe I'd be totally terrible at it or that it was that bad, but it was just, it gave me that moment of pause where I was like, Oh, this thing I've had in my head that I'm so convinced I want to do is just very different than what I expect it to be. And um, yeah, maybe it's time to take a beat and think about it a little bit. And uh, that got me onto a few different tangents. And frankly, it was not, straight line either right like sure. i have no idea what i was doing or thinking about it at the time. <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and i think it's interesting because i think i've brought it up a couple of times on the, on the on the podcast now but similarly like i had this vision that i was going to be an architect i was good at math i could draw right. I like geometric geometrical uh spatial sense and then i had a very similar interaction where i spoke to an architect who maybe wasn't the most passionate person about their job or the most significant, uh, successful, but as a result, the picture that it painted for me around what that reality would be over the first decade or two of my career, you know, didn't suddenly sound as glamorous as you know designing and building a building that would stay there forever, right? And so, I, I that totally resonates with me when kind of the reality doesn't uh, necessarily intersect with what your vision for the opportunity was, which makes total sense. And then. You know, from there, obviously, you have your opportunities working with the Canadian Education Network. But even as you go from Canadian Education Network to Clio to now Care, you know, we'll, we'll circle back a little bit closer to the beginning um, after this question. But all of those are very much like mission-driven, driving societal good types of organizations. Is that something that has always been core to kind of your motivators and, and what really push you to work hard? For sure. Like that's, that's such a key part of how... I think consciously and unconsciously, I end up gravitating toward uh, what I end up doing. I certainly am the type of person, and I don't think everyone is or certainly has to be this way, but I like getting immersed in my work, right? I, I don't think about it in a highly... I think about the way I do my work in highly structured ways, but not in how I engage my work. I'm a big believer and I've always been influenced by uh, Dan Pink's book, Drive, which talks about the intrinsic theory of motivation as encompassing... Right autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And so that purpose piece, I think for folks who look to be intrinsically motivated, like I do personally, is very, very strong. And you're right. In all three of those examples, there was a a very clear and resonant purpose with me that I was able to grab onto, am able to grab onto from a a mission-driven perspective. And, you know, it, it makes like the way to think about it is if we do the right things by achieving the missions in each of those circumstances, I felt like commercial success, personal success, those things would come as the outcomes really wholeheartedly throwing myself at a mission that that I believed in. And um, that's always been super important. Absolutely. And I mean, so you've scaled an organization to a thousand people, right? Like, and I guess over the course of scaling that organization, you've obviously had a number of different folks come through your teams and you would have observed, I guess, as you were leading them, folks who were maybe very closely tied to the mission and folks who weren't. Did you find that, you know, could you contrast and compare and see the difference in the progress and the impact that those individuals were having at these organizations? 
For sure. I mean, I think something I've often reflected on is that sometimes we need to be real about the fact that the root of the word culture is cult. <laughs> and so <laughs> that word I know means many different things to many different folks. But to be fair, like there is a value system that I think pulls people together in mission driven companies. Right. And if folks attach to it, then they certainly feel a part of what's going on and, you know, they get motivated and, and approach their work in a different way. And for folks who are still looking for the right fit, you can recognize it. Sometimes that's just not what drives people and motivates them. And, and that can be okay. Yeah. Uh, and other times people are looking for that, but are still looking for the right fit. And I think in each of those circumstances, it, it worked differently. I think what I've had to learn a bit and maybe it would have been more patience testing for me earlier in my leadership career is that we've got to be inclusive to people with all those backgrounds, right? Like sometimes right. folks just don't like drinking the Kool-Aid or getting too cheesy or emotional at work. And I don't think it necessarily means that they can't be an integral part of the team or be a very important welcome voice, but you do need to engage them differently. And I think that's something that I've been kind of forced to learn and to adapt uh, to over my career. And that's, uh, I think has been a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a powerful kind of um, uh, idea and, and learning for anyone who is kind of entering leadership positions or maybe has been in one for a long time, that there are going to be very differing motivators between different people on the team. And that doesn't mean um, that the various people can't all be equally successful. It's just about motivating that person the right way to, yeah, to, yeah. Do, to work hard and grow. And I, I think that I, I really like that. And that resonates with me um, hugely. And then on the individual's um, part, it's about being very transparent and kind of authentic with what your motivators actually are and, and understanding what those are and leaning into them, which makes total sense. But I mean, now circling back to you know your time kicking off and starting with Clio, six people, right? You guys have a vision, young, scrappy startup, right? And then you know, very quickly, your role obviously scaled. You became more senior from director to vice president to then a C-suite role, right? Like in a relatively short period of time, in parallel to the organization scaling considerably, right? Uh, just talk a little bit about how, you know, you had to shift from worrying more less about kind of your personal kind of career stage growth and more about the growth of an entire team than an entire business unit in an organization, right? Like, uh, you know, there's a very big kind of mindset shift that you'd have to manage in a very short period of time. Absolutely. And as with all things you're going to hear me answer about today, I don't think it was as intentional when I put back the tape or as yeah. like meticulous and guided a journey as it could have been. But, uh, there are definitely a lot of things to learn and a lot of things that happened uh, very quickly. So something that's always been important to me has been to think ahead. I know that sounds obvious, but like in any given moment, even in the, you know, competing tensions and demands and, and wearing all the hats kind of stuff that happens in an early stage startup, I always actually draw energy from taking a minute to reflect on what could this be? What could this turn into? What might this look like? And then to work back like design backward a bit from there, and so as that happened, I found a lot of the time it was fun to compare what I expected with what was happening or what the attributes were, but to also kind of not be thinking about what am I going to be like or what do I need to show up like in these moments for the first time. Right. I think it's going to show up very differently for different people, right? Like not everyone's going to, they're inductive thinkers, they're deductive thinkers, but just in sharing uh, how I've thought about it over the years, that was really important to me. It's like, I, I want to kind of have thought about this at least once before we get to the next stage or to meaningfully evaluate, like, am I the right person in this moment? Do I believe that I'm scaling and growing? Am I getting bored even, you know, in, in different yeah. junctures and looking for a new challenge and to be 
very upfront about that and not overlook it as all the crazy stuff is happening and the company scaling and things are changing very quickly. So that, that's a really important piece to me. And then in terms of what it was like, like I think a very important milestone that I'll never forget is when a company hits something that's called Dunbar's number. I don't know if you're familiar with Dunbar's number. I'm, but I'm not. And I don't know if the list, the listeners would be. So I'd love for you to quick, quick, yeah, quick sidebar. So Dunbar was a, a social scientist, a psychology researcher who studied human organizations and found that at about like 80 to 100 people is when any, frankly, tribe or organization of any kind hits this very important juncture. And that is where not everyone really truly knows each other as a personal connection. And so there's the execution side of like me doing stuff versus having teams of people now doing things that I used to do as we scale and grow, doing new things. But then there's this kind of social connectivity side where you hit this point or suddenly there's like a lot of people working and doing stuff who you don't even know, let alone know what they're working on. Right. And I remember that being this very pronounced moment and in being influenced by uh, the research around Dunbar's number. And if folks are curious about it, obviously there's tons of reading to do, but also think about the average like military uh, platoon size. They all tend to orbit around 100 people or so as this is the, commu- the max number of people where you're kind of one unit. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, company scale past that not only my job, but everything suddenly felt like this next level of you require systems. Things don't come together organically. There's a lot of communication and and coordination overhead that suddenly starts to emerge. Yeah. And I remember that being one of those moments where like it kicked into a higher gear for me to do this thing of thinking ahead and planning and understanding like at what points am I landing and expanding functions? At what points am I kind of for the better managing myself out of a job? uh, And a thing I had to learn a lot coming from a very execution focused background was when to actually leave the space for folks to jump in and do stuff. I'll never forget right. getting this feedback as a leader uh, in one of the teams that I built. They they kind of called it the uh, the George takeover, <laughs> and it's like it kind of like directly, but then direct, indirectly rather, but then directly came to me as feedback. Where I was like, "What what the hell is that?" And they were like. Sometimes if we're not executing something up to your standards, you just suddenly appear and start doing stuff. (laughs) You can do it. But I think you need to understand how like demotivating that is for us because what we're thinking to ourselves is like, great, George doesn't trust me to do X, Y, or Z. And like he's just swooping and doing it himself. What's going through my head? I'm rolling up my sleeves. I'm showing like I'm not too good to do the work as a leader. I'm helping move things along. The team's gonna be really excited that I'm leaning in and helping things go. Not at all. They were like, I feel really bad. <laughs> wow. So, right around that Dunbar's number, some of that started to happen. And I think they were early formative experiences for me that really influenced how I then thought about all the subsequent chapters of scale. Of course, a lot of that I got to practice at Clio, but definitely learned from a lot of other different organizations. And uh, of course, they're very heavily influential to how I'm thinking through working with the team at Allied Care for, for the future there. I mean, what an incredible learning. And, and and to happen kind of organically the way it did, just yeah. to learn the term and then kind of have it understood. But but it, even as you describe it, like your willingness to lean in and roll up the sleeves was one to prove that you weren't too detached and two to support the team. And that's coming from an authentically like positive place, right? But I think that that anyone listening to this, right, uh, could hear that and be like have a kind of a um, a eureka moment around the fact that this could be perceived very differently. I think that's super interesting. And then, you know, as you described the idea that around that 80 to 100 person mark is when you really started to have to think ahead and start to plan and think about what this is going to be at the next step. So you don't hit that next step totally unprepared. 
I do want to kind of pivot to the fact that you talked about, you know, as you were scaling the organization, you introduced sales ops, DevOps, RevOps functions, et cetera. You know, those are things you hadn't done before, right? And so now to do them and do them successfully, obviously it's iterative, you learned, you evolved, you made mistakes, sure. But how, for example, when thinking and planning for forwards and you're standing up entirely new capabilities, you know, how, how did you ensure that you were doing these things the right way? How did you work to strategize and solution for those capabilities? Yeah. And again, the, the condensed version always makes it seem a little more streamlined than, than it probably was at the time. But I think that's such an important thing to, to dig into. Like, look, on some level, I think I got the privilege of working with a lot of people around me who shared this ethos and that we embodied kind of two things that were really important to me and that I think are really important for folks who want to thrive in these types of environments. The first was a high degree of curiosity. That drove us to be very analysis-driven, very data-driven, to be kind of as much as we could apolitical about just looking at the facts uh, and then assessing situations. Because then it guides you on how you're going to do all of this stuff, what the right models are, where to go and get curious and learn more. The second piece of the curiosity, of course, was in always staying in touch with what's going on in industry. I think we live in this era of the information age where... This is going to sound ridiculous, but sometimes I think people could just stop and like Google some stuff more often and read and get curious and think to themselves like, hey, I'm not the only person in the world thinking about this and trying to solve it. And of course, there's always a discourse that you have to wade through and develop your own opinion on. But whether it's through consuming uh, credible resources out there or getting connected through folks like mentors, investment portfolios, other professionals who... Are working on similar stuff. Of course, I was benefited by having access to these things, which I'm incredibly grateful for. Yeah, I feel like it was important not to pass up the opportunity to be ravenous with curiosity. Like I love learning new stuff, and I can get bored quickly. Uh, and so it was the opposite of that. Right? Like I got to, I got the patience and the support from the Clio team, and especially its two founders, Jack and Ryan, to like having yeah. the space to learn to do new stuff instead of I think it can be easier seeming to go just higher above or like get people who. I've been there, done that before. And, but once I got those opportunities, I think, you know, it was important to obviously prove them out and to move very quickly and to operate with a higher degree of context versus someone who's trying to ramp up for the first time to a new business, to a new market, right. to a new team, et cetera, a new product. And, uh, yeah, for whatever reason, uh, those things came together and I learned how to do a lot of, uh, new stuff. And, I enjoyed the fact that actually all of those things were also emerging disciplines. They still are, uh, but they were emerging disciplines at the time, right? Like I think early days, there were a lot of established things to do in areas like sales ops, but they weren't quite all the way there in terms of sophistication for, for example, a B2B SaaS company like ours that had very low ACVs. Right. It actually wasn't a very well-trodden space with uh, you know that type of work. And so it was, it was cool being part of both learning, but also contributing. Uh, to models on how companies can do that stuff. Well, so I mean, doing so, for example, and shaping what that would look like for for companies by doing it and experimenting within your own, right, out of necessity, that obviously builds an enormous amount of confidence if you do so successfully, right? And I think, you know, I think for a lot of people, they can wrap their heads around for any scale of organization, how to ascend to the level of like a VP, let's say, right? There's usually a pretty defined path, right? If you're in an industry side organization, it's like, you've got to 
you know, inside of a business unit, you have to play all these different types of roles to get a broad enough perspective, but then have a specialization and have the opportunity to present itself and be the best candidate and you become a VP. Great. If you work in management, ser- managed services or consulting, there's usually a predefined ladder. You keep getting better and better and better and delivering more and more revenue, et cetera. And, and, and then, or become a stronger thought leader and you become, you know, that senior layer. But then suddenly, you know, that pyramid goes from certain level of breadth to very, very small right. uh, people when you talk about the yeah. C-suite layer. Now, if you're open to it, I'd love to talk about like, what does that look like? Sitting there at that VP level layer and then growing or building yourself up towards being a good candidate and then seizing the opportunity to enter a, a C-level role uh, at not an insignificantly sized organization at the time that you were taking on the role, right? Yeah. I think yeah. That, like I've never, I, we've just never had the opportunity to to explore this area. I'd be curious if you could talk about that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to reflect back on that and, and to think through what some of those, those moments were. I mean, a certain part of it, I think has to come from over achieving somewhat at a VP level. Like I think if you're going to take a path like mine, moving someone who hasn't done it before and is going to be a first time C-level team member into that role carries a significant amount of risk. Unless you've been able to kind of vet and test the person in, you know, almost a trial for the, for the role. Right. Right. And I think that's what a, a lot of my job looked like at the time where I was a VP of biz ops at the time, but I was doing, and maybe even to get into some more specifics, cause I think you're right. There aren't very many like tangible, clear conversations out there about this kind of stuff. But here's a key piece, for example, in my job, I had a day job and then I would do a lot of things outside of it at the company. And what that looked like for me was whenever Clio was between leaders, especially in their go-to market facing roles. So these would include uh, marketing sales and customer success. I would actually manage those portfolios uh, while I managed them. I participated in the recruitment process of like both vetting, but also of course selling the vision and going out and getting uh, really high quality candidates alongside the founders of the business and especially the CEO, Jack Newton. But I also took those portfolios and made sure we were going to not just tread water, but continuously improve and actually solve a whole bunch of stuff or take them to the next level with a fresh pair of eyes, build off the momentum that was already there. And if I think about it, that was a key piece as well, because it established me as like maybe operating a little bit more outside of and at a slightly more senior level than my day job, if that makes sense, is there were right. like a clear scope and responsibilities and a job description that went with being a VP of business operations at the company. It's not typical for someone, I think, to go be like your interim at the same time, head of sales, head of marketing, head of CS, and to actually be strong at that. Right. Uh, and in doing so, to continuously learn uh, more and more of the business. And then getting into like executive recruitment, but also getting to the stage where uh, you know one of the big switches that happens when you get into that C-level role is you now need to be coaching VP-level folks and to see yourself as a capable mentor, but also, frankly, manager for them. Uh, obviously, always want to be a leader more so than, than a manager at that level and, and leave a lot of autonomy and, and space for folks to thrive. But I also have never subscribed to the theory that everyone's a finished product. Like Everybody, no matter what their job is, is not just like done, done developing. And I think there's a lot of companies out there that think that folks at the VP level should just be finished products. Right. I don't believe that that's true. And I've always engaged in both peer-to-peer coaching and learning from each other, but certainly taking on a responsibility that even when someone's in a VP level, like you're mentoring them, you're pushing them to accelerate their career and achieve their own goals. And I kind of started to do a little bit of that before it was actually my job also. And I think, I suspect, <laughs> as the decision wasn't mine personally, but I certainly 
accepted it when uh, I got the opportunity, you know, I suspect that kind of helped build a little bit of confidence um, in between making that transition. Yeah, I think it's incredibly interesting because as you described the idea of having your core job, your day job, and then, you know, being an interim lead for other business functions or, or, or areas of the business, inherently, I think you described the fact that, yeah, you have to lead them at a more senior level because you don't have the same, you know, role that you do for your own day job. But to do so, there are only so many hours in the day, days in the week, weeks, et cetera, et cetera. You inevitably have, you must elevate yourself in your actual day job as well to do both successfully. And so suddenly now you're giving opportunities that are stretching others under you in your day role. Um, you know, you're building up the, the confidence to, to allow for that to happen. And, and then, you know, all tides rise sort of situation, right? So they fill the gap. Yep. And then now you're broadening yourself in your leadership capability and your mastery of the business. I mean, I, I have witnessed that in my own career at a much more junior level, right? Where, you know, you take on a plus one activity and you, you know, hand off something, but you oversee it. And then, you know, collectively, you're now overseeing a broader piece of work. And, you know, that translates to a growth opportunity, et cetera. But, you know, to hear the way that you've described it, that makes a ton of sense, right? Um, to, to pursue those types of opportunities, especially if as a VP, you're not recognizing, you're recognizing that you're not a finished product and there, there's more to, to learn and grow then the pursuit of those types of interim oversight opportunities is a no brainer. Um, I think, I think that's, ve that's very interesting. Um, Peter, you make an interesting point too, and something I shouldn't overlook, right? And that is, I didn't do it alone. Like there right. was support, but also, you know, in what's what we're calling my day job, uh, as I referred to it, like there were incredibly strong people in those roles and in those teams that I was able to lean on, but even to, um, you know, retract from a bit and leaving them space like you described and to then be able to take on new focus areas. And something that was... This is a nuanced point, but I really want to make sure I make it uh, for folks who are curious about this type of career development and path. It was never, I hope, <laughs> uh, like a, a political play. Like it was really important to me that I'm stepping in to help the business. Right. If this goes somewhere for me, that's amazing. But the most important thing I'm driven by is the mission, but also by the results. Like, can we all as a team step up, stretch ourselves? And do this because we as a team need it. Uh, and the outcomes were things like not having to rush our executive searches, right? If we're looking for a new VP in a role, we take the time that we needed because things were in order, they weren't on fire, uh, and we didn't need to rush a decision. And similarly, you know, we could make some improvements and keep things moving. And I think there's this nuance to that approach that earns a lot of trust and even credibility. Right. I hope it certainly did with my colleagues and peers uh, back in the day, but that I think is an important thing for me to share. Just as I reflect back on the experience. No, I'm glad that you jumped in and shared. I think that's incredibly critical because I, I think that uh, a political move reeks of being a political move. Uh, yeah, like you it know, can unintentionally even perhaps seem like a little bit of empire building. And for me, it was always like, hey, I'm totally comfortable giving these responsibilities back. What I'm here to do is step up and yeah. help the company, help the business, help our customers, uh, and make sure that uh, you know the business is, isn't fragile. Perhaps is maybe the way to think about it. Um, when these moments come up. And so but, yeah, it'd be a miss not to make that point. Absolutely. But, and now as I'm reflecting on the way that you comment around this, when I think about in my own career, I mentioned, let's say I took on a plus one activity, right? It was like an additional set of deliverables, let's say like as a manager years ago, but that's not the same thing as taking on 
an additional business unit or function where you've got entire people's careers as well as a core part of your organization's ability to, to function, that's an enormous amount of risk to shoulder as well. How are you managing that in the moment? Because I think that you know there's dealing with stress and then there's dealing with stress. And this obviously scales exponentially when you're suddenly making decisions on behalf of, let's say, 200 people to 400 people inside right, of the organization. Right, yeah. It's huge impact. Every decision has massive weight. So how did you acclimatize yourself to that? Yeah, I, maybe it did and didn't. <laughs> like, look, I, I think another important admission for me is that those moments were very involved from a work perspective. Like there's no... Right sugarcoating it. Like I worked a lot <laughs> and uh, decided that that was a fit for me at that stage of my life and my career. And so uh, I don't want to, like, that's a big part of it. Like you are taking on extra work. So yeah, like if you're going to be diligent at it and not half-ass it, like you're going to put in the time. And uh, the other thing for me was again, always being driven by a high level of curiosity and learning. So I didn't want to walk into any situations with assumptions. I wanted to roll up the insights from those teams. I still wanted to be a challenger, but also put the rigor into developing strong opinions around what to do. And then I felt if those things were, you know, opinions I could develop with a lot of conviction and get to testing and seeing progress happen, I started to build a little bit of momentum around my own confidence. Like, Hey, this is working and things are improving. And I think one other thing that came out and that probably developed significantly is a skill set for me in that time was communicating with a high degree of context. Uh, obviously, again, yeah. I'm a finished product. I still got to get better at that every day. But when you have so many people to communicate with, they need to you know, develop trust and they need to form with you quickly as a high-performing team. I found that the whole act of, as Simon Sinek describes it, like starting with why. Like, why are we doing this? Why are we making changes? Why are you the interim you know, VP of our department uh, when you have other responsibilities? And why is that a good thing? Um, folks had a high degree of common trust. Like I shouldn't make it seem like that wasn't the case, but at the same time, there was this intentional effort that I had to put a disproportionate amount of time into and just making sure everybody understood what was going on. Of course. Uh, and I think that helped lead a lot of stability in those moments, uh, too. So, you know, as you describe all of this, um, you know, the word trust continues to, to yeah. kind of come up and, you know, establishing the amount of trust that you, you need to, to win over, to ascend to that sort of role based on, on the back of these types of plus one opportunities, right? Um, also taking an organization from six people to a thousand, from a director role to a C-level role, like a, a lot of people would describe what they've done in their, in their professional lives to date as like a career. I would almost argue that what I just described is as, as close to a legacy as it gets. There's enormous amounts of very, I'm sure, strong relations you've built, right? This is, you know, your life's work up until that point, And it is objectively meaningful and significant, particularly because it's mission um, driven. The decision to then pursue a different opportunity. That's an enormous one. Can you talk a little bit about what went into that? Especially, it's not like you're leaving a manager level role, not to say that that's insignificant. This is you're leaving a legacy and your life's work behind. So, so how did you go about making that decision? What, what made you open to it in the first place? Yeah, that was a big moment and uh, continues to be one uh, in, in my career and, and in my life for sure. I appreciate you, you know, calling it out as a legacy, certainly. I think that's the way those of us who are, are part of that original Clio team would think about the contributions we all made. And, and certainly a word that's uh, 
those team members have used in the past to talk about you know my my contribution and and the time there and so again less intentional like i can't tell you that i was on the prowl like had decided it was time to make a change and was looking actively i i had the chance to meet adrian the ceo and founder of lycare and just kind of took it as one of those like hey it's a pretty limited ecosystem of folks in like the canadian tech startup never mind scale world right so i was like hey cool there's a I think like your scale would surprise a lot of folks. Like we are a company that's coming up on 700 employees, but because we're so uh, specific to the home care space, I think it flies a little under the radar. And so yeah. I had that moment where I was like, Whoa, there's like a, a scale SaaS company of this size that I actually don't know a lot about in a really cool space. And that piqued my curiosity. Got it. And then it almost like burrowed in my head as this problem. I couldn't make go away where I couldn't talk myself out of getting excited about uh, the potential of both working with Adrian and then the rest of his team as I met them over the weeks uh, and working on that market and in that company environment and in that new purpose. And it was the first time in 11 years that I was starting to get curious about moving towards something else. And then I had to frankly ask myself like exactly that, like, wow, if I'm feeling like it's time to make a change and I'm feeling really passionate about learning, you know, I was excited too to like get some fresh subject matter, learn a new market and, and lean into that. And I think even more than I was admitting myself, maybe I was ready yeah, to, to think about that, which is hard to make time for when you are so present and embedded a part of a, a company and the journey I, I got to go on at Clio. And so, yeah, then I got hit with all these emotions of being like, oh man, like what is this even going to be like? And right. how am I even going to start, you know, the conversation? And, uh, you know, it led to a lot of, I think, emotional moments for me is uh, we reflected back on what had happened, but also, a lot of pride in being able to... I got a few things that I think actually make me uh, fortunate. One, we were able to place an uh, incoming COO, really uh, a talented individual by the name of Ronnie Gurian, who joined from uh, Uber's enterprise division. Oh, cool. Uh, and we had to overlap. So I got to do a proper baton pass, which I think is pretty rare. I don't have a lot of data points on that, but I just I don't think it's the way it usually goes on yeah. tech COOs. You know, usually it's like... Like who gets onboarded by the, <laughs> right. by the overlap? I was really fortunate to have a liker be patient uh, in letting that happen. And when a few of those things started to come together, it really started to ease my and this weird mix of anxiety and excitement around making the change. I'm sure folks all get that, and I'm not the only person to ever leave a job. So let's not you know let's not overlook yeah. it. But it is a little different. It's not yeah. like just leaving a job. It wasn't for me and sharing my personal experience. It was like leaving behind what had been a very significant part of, frankly, my adult life, but also that had been a pretty unique journey to go on uh, that many others have been on. But that isn't, I think, the tip, like you pointed out, the typical uh, career experience that uh, folks, many folks have out there. So yeah, it was a cocktail of emotions. It was getting curious. And I always like to describe it as very much running towards something versus running away from something. Like there was nothing... Right pushing me out of Clio or anything that made it a time to leave. It was more a really exciting time to, to try something new. And uh, I, I think it's been amazing for everybody involved uh, in, in playing it back. And uh, I'm grateful. I, I love uh, that that is how the entire process played out. And I often compare and contrast some of these stories with my own career. And, you know, it's actually today as we're recording, I'm celebrating nine years of my career at Publicis Sapiens. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. And I started there as a junior associate. Literally, I've grown up at this company straight out of my undergrad. I had internships and co-ops prior, but this has been my only ever full-time role. And I have 
on different occasions for one reason or another, similarly not running from, but to something, been curious about opportunities and explored them. But one thing that I've kind of mulled over and I, I've never regretted for a second continuing to stay at Pulis Sapient, and I still feel I have a ton of growth opportunity here, but I always think about, I have this enormous network. I have visibility and relationships with these most senior executives. I have an incredible team and bubble of leadership on that team that has helped hone and grow me and give me stretch opportunities. And I can keep going and going with this list of how unbelievable my experience has been. And I have this anxiety around if I went to another organization, whether a smaller one or a bigger one, you know, could lightning strike twice? Could I ever replicate this? Because somebody may simply not resonate with me, right? Or they, or I may not resonate with them. And as a result, they won't place the similar opportunities with me. They may not champion my career, right? Um, it may take much longer to form those relationships if it's this really large organization, right? So I've always thought about that. But now as I contrast that with your transition, you are transitioning from a, the most senior level to the most senior level. So those considerations are a little bit different. You're almost entirely focused on your ability to, to deliver impact and help grow and shape that organization. The rest, almost, it, it, it's, it's not relevant in the same way, right? Because you don't have to replicate the journey you had at Clio. You just have to go and build and create and scale. Uh, is that something that was part of the, the decision as you were kind of going through it, that you were maybe able to step away from what was ultimately, I have to imagine, very heavy. And what I mean by that is all the legacy, all the experience, all the context, all the knowledge, all the scope of which you controlled to reset and now suddenly just have to, from scratch, solve new problems, but without all of that weight. Right. And it, like it was that part of the consideration. It, it it has been and it continues to be right. So it's it's not going to be the same journey or the same chapter. It's it's going to be a different one. And my sincere hope and frankly expectation is that I should be able to take so many of the incredible learnings and uh, experiences from my time at Clio, but not to try to make a Lycare Clio 2.0 for me. Right? It's a different right. moment. It's a different company. Uh, of course, in the grand world of work, like one Canadian-based vertical SaaS company to another isn't, I think, like the most dramatic transition. You know, yeah. there are much more uh, career pivot, much more significant career pivots that folks out there make. So there's a lot of similarities, and obviously, I do feel like a uniquely qualified person from the perspective of like building a SaaS company, of of really understanding the the space, the go-to-market architecture, this type of business model, and and so on. With that said, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's different, and um, it's scary, but also I'm having a lot of fun and really getting reinvigorated. And it's actually fun. Like actually an important consideration for me too, is not even to do the same version of a COO job again. I actually have a slightly different like scope and mandate, a different, you know, oh, uh, division of scope with uh, the CEO uh, Adrian and with the CRO Brady at, uh, at Eliacare. And, and that was actually a bonus for me. It was like, I don't want to do the same thing again. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to do a lot of the same stuff. Don't get me wrong. It's a, similar position in a similar scale company that's similarly looking to grow really fast and uh, to execute in a uh, almost uh, reminiscent way, but like it's going to be a different gem. And uh, I think that's a big part of what compelled me. And, you know, is it lightning striking twice or maybe just like a different bolt in the same storm? I, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it's interesting that that piece is compelling, but then it needs to still be challenging and something that I am going to drive tremendous amount of value for. Like I wouldn't, 
I don't think it would be fair if uh, I wasn't stretching and growing, but also uh, delivering unique value to to the team. And it's been amazing, and the team's been incredible. So, uh, and I don't, I know that's like the boilerplate thing to say, but in my experience, it's been true. And I didn't take that for granted, right? Like when you make right. a switch, I think you're right. You could meet another collection of like-minded folks with similar values and mission alignment as you, or it could be completely different in a way that you don't fit. Yeah, I don't have a great answer other than like that is part of the risk that gets taken uh, when when someone makes a switch. And um, I also don't, I can't guarantee that that's the way my experience would have gone. And like, here's an amazing place. I'm fortunate, but hey, I could join another company that just had a completely different culture or leadership architecture, and one that I'd be poorly suited for, or maybe even not highly engaged in. Uh, right. And that's not to be taken for granted. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that's why I've always weighed it so considerably, um, in my own experience, you know, I've, I've worked on and supported 30 plus different client accounts over different, uh, across all different industry verticals and not once, you know, in experiencing their different organizational cultures, was I ever like, this is better than the one I actually work in. And, and as a result, it's always been a really easy decision to continue to stay and grow inside my own. Um, but that said, you know, just objectively, like you have achieved like a, a pretty significant amount of success in your career. I think a lot of people aspire to to reaching a C level position in corporate careers, and you're a relatively young person. You have a lot of C level doing left ahead of you in your <laughs> career. Um, is there anything as you kind of look forward over the next couple of decades that are things that you want to? What are your kind of professional bucket list items that maybe you can share with us that uh, that you still want to knock off? Oh man, this is probably the place where I have the worst answers. For someone who claimed to think ahead uh, at the right. beginning of this interview, uh, I think I'm being uh, found out for not thinking as meticulously ahead as I can. But no, look, like I, I think there are, in the spirit of bucket list, there are a few things that, uh, that you pointed out that are important to me. I think at some point in the future, like I do have passion for probably being a CEO versus COO. Like I'll be open and honest about that. I think there'd be a lot that would stretch me, you know, mildly terrify me, but also get the best out of me in terms of like not having someone else to lean on and really needing to be, uh, the go-to most accountable person in an organization. So yeah, for whatever reason, I have some curiosity in checking that out. It is not on any kind of like timeline or trajectory, but like, you know, uh, I think there's a nuanced difference between those two roles. And so I'm, I'm, I'm interested in exploring that one day. I think I'm also deeply passionate about building the ecosystem around us. Like I think we, we have made great progress in building a more diversified uh, and thriving technology ecosystem that attracts different kinds of folks to it in Canada. I still think we have a long way to go and that uh, we could be more you know, globally competitive and uh, make great strides toward that. So I have a deep amount of passion, however that is, in contributing to that outside of the context of like being highly performing in a role. And uh, I try to do that a bit now too, where I, I do advise and mentor a lot of startups or individual startup founders. Um, I just get a lot of energy from that too. Like it's fun to uh, be in it with them and to be a, a, a trusted source of advice and information and to approach that with a high degree of curiosity. So whatever that is, like I pr- probably see myself putting more energy toward that in the future as well. But when the time feels right and uh, when I feel uh, more more qualified to be giving other people advice uh, increasingly in the years to come, so you know that's a big aspiration of mine is just building ecosystem building and uh, inspiring uh, others outside of the world of my direct work and, and job. So 
look forward to to doing that. And one other piece is like, I don't know if it's going to show up in the form of like hobbies or uh, work, but I, I kind of want to spend a bit more time being a beginner at stuff again too. Like you get oh, on this career path where you're expected to kind of be an expert or just, you know, like really sophisticated or whatever it is you do. And, uh, you know, like at some point I think I'll have to fire up the part of my brain. That's just like, let's be completely new and maybe even bad at something. <laughs> yeah. I think there's something, something for me to return to there uh, as a good stretch as insane as this might sound to anybody who's listening, but I have yet to figure out what that is, but, uh, yeah, I think there's something in there for me to find. Like maybe it's a career pivot or trying something completely wacky or, uh, something in, in the hobby world, but just, uh, being comfortable, being really bad at stuff again is something, uh, I think, but hopefully improving at it, uh, is something I want to explore. Well, I, what I love about this is as I try and lay this out into a roadmap or, you know, a timeline, all I'm hearing is that you, you would like to ascend to a CEO, um, then downstream of that elevate an entire country standing in the technology <laughs> landscape. And then, pivot and be an absolute novice at something, which I think is <laughs> as a, as those items contrast against each other. I, I love the aspirational nature of two of them and also the honesty behind them. I think that you are a person that will have maybe the ability to do exactly that. This idea of like elevating the Canadian, you know, standing in technology, then, then it's people like you who should aspire to do something like that. And then, you know, I think that people who maybe would like to be a CEO one day, they have to lean into that. Otherwise, that's something there's so few of the opportunities to ever do something like that. If you're not fully leaned in from day one, it probably won't happen. Right. So I, yeah. I think that that's a, the honesty and sharing that is an important thing because I think anyone who in their heads is like, oh, that'd be an interesting thing to experience one day you need to be saying that outwardly and making decisions in that direction now. Yeah. Um, and then I think I totally resonates me. I'm a huge hobby type person. I'm a man of many interests, <laughs> many passions. And so, you know, I often find myself being quite bad at them to begin with. And it's an exciting uh, feeling as well. But in summarizing all that, George this has been a fantastic conversation. There's just so much, uh, so many rich learnings for people to really pull away from it. I appreciate your candor and your transparency and your time. And honestly, I look forward to catching up on the podcast again in a while. See where you're at. But this was awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. It was great for me too. And uh, yeah, hopefully, if uh, any of this was interesting, uh, you'll have me back sometime, and we can uh, we can catch up and check in.